Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Jesse, I, I should warn you that several people came up to me and said they wanted to hug you too. So, just, just warning you. Before we get started, I wanted to announce again that we're going to start another session of Rooted, first week of April. Uh, Rooted is 10 weeks of discipleship that will uh, you'll come out of a different person, closer to the Lord. So if you're interested in that, I please come see me, come see Keith. Keith, raise your hand. Raise your other hand, Keith. There you go. Uh, we'd love to have you, have you to be a part of that. Okay. The, uh, when the Jews crossed into the uh, Promised Land, uh, following Joshua, they went in, and as you know, they uh, went to Jericho, and with God's direction and instruction, they defeated Jericho. And after they defeated Jericho, they went to a town called Ai, sometimes we call it Ai, and went to attack it. The problem was is that they didn't go to God first, and they were defeated. Turns out there was sin in the camp. But they took care of the sin, um, and then they went back to Ai, and they defeated Ai. And instead of going to the next place to conquer, God told them, actually told them going back all the way to Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 27, he told them to go uh, travel which about what would be about 40 miles north of Jerusalem, between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And I think I've got a picture coming up of that. There they are. Okay. The, the buildings and stuff aren't there or weren't there uh, at the time. And they're, when we say mountains, they're not mountains. Um, they're more like big hills, about 3,000 feet tall. But anyway, they went there, and uh, they did several things. God instructed them, instructed Joshua to build an altar, and he built an altar in Mount Ebal, large altar, and by the way, archaeologists think they have found that altar. But uh, God instructed him to build the altar, cover the stones with plaster, and then write on the stones the law of God. And I presume that means that Joshua wrote all of the law found in Deuteronomy on those stones. And then Joshua read the law. And then they had several sacrifices. And then they did something we might find unusual. And uh, I'd like to kind of visualize that a little bit. So if I could have my uh, Levites come up. We have uh, Levite Caleb and Levite Nate. <laughs> Levite Nate, you're going to be on this side. Yeah, Levite Caleb, you're over here. And you guys are going to be the Jews. And what uh, what the Jews were instructed to do is that they were instructed, half the Jews, half the tribes, six tribes, were to stand at the base of Mount Gerizim. And the other half stood at the base of Mount Ebal. And if you see it, the, it's not there, it's there. Uh, Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessings, Mount Ebal is the Mount of Curses. And so what happened was that uh, the Levites had brought the Ark of the Covenant, set it right between the two mountains. There's about a mile of space between the two mountains forms a natural amphitheater, and so when you, if you're at Mount Gerizim, you, you start talking, the people on Mount Ebal can hear you, and vice versa. Um, so they had the tribe stand in front of the mountains, uh, and you guys are going to be the tribe standing in front, in front of Mount Gerizim, so why don't you stand up, 
And then you guys are going to be the ones standing in front, in front of Mount Ebal, so you can stand up. <laughs> yeah, team curses, team blessings. Here we go. And face each other. And what's going to happen is Levite Nate's going to read uh, the, some of the blessings of the covenant that if the people follow God that they would receive, and then Levite uh, Caleb's going to read some of the curses. So Nate will read the first blessing, and when he does, at the end, you guys will say amen. And you guys will shout amen. And then Levite Caleb will read one of the curses, and when he's done, you guys will shout amen to each other. Okay? And they'll each read three, so uh, let's see how this goes. And it will happen that if you indeed listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to diligently observe all his commandments that I am commanding you today, then all these blessings shall come upon you. You will be blessed in the city and you will be blessed in the field. Amen! And then if you do not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God by diligently observing all of his commandments and his statutes that I am commanding you today, and all of these curses shall come upon you, and they shall overtake you. You shall be cursed in the city, and you shall be cursed in the field. Amen. Blessed will you be when you come in, and blessed when you go out. Amen. You shall be cursed when you come in, and you shall be cursed when you go out. Amen. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. On one road they shall come out against you, but on seven roads they shall flee before you. Amen. Amen. Yahweh shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. On one road you shall go against them, but you will flee on seven roads before them. And you shall, you shall become a thing of horror to all of the kingdoms of the earth. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you. Good job. Well done. When I told Caleb he was going to be the Levite of curses, he said, that figures. So the Israelites pledged their allegiance. They pledged their commitment to follow the covenant that God had made with them. But... It didn't last long. They didn't keep the covenant that they promised to keep. A common refrain in the book of Joshua of Judges is that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Jews broke the covenant. They broke the covenant that the and it's the covenant that the author of Hebrews addresses. So let's read Hebrews eight one through thirteen. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See to it, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent 
than the old, co- than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We're going to look today at the better ministry, and then the better promises, and then the better covenant. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for making a new covenant. Thank you for making a new covenant, Father, that we can enter into through the work of Jesus Christ. And by placing our faith of him, are placing our faith in him, and that was always your plan, because you always wanted to have a relationship with us. So, Father, I pray that you open our hearts to your word this morning, and that as we go through it today, that you would be glorified, and that we would become more like Jesus Christ. In His name, you pray. Amen. All right, better ministry. If you could pick one word that would describe the sermon that is what we call the letter to the Hebrews, it would probably be the word superior. More to the point, Jesus is superior. And that's how the author's sermon begins, way back in chapter 1. That's where he started. Jesus is superior. The author goes on to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to angels. And then he says that Jesus is superior to Moses. And then he says that Jesus has been appointed our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is superior over Aaron. He is superior over the Levitical priesthood. And it's that idea that Jesus is our superior high priest appointed by God that occupies the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews. And as we move now into chapter 8, the author speaks of the superior ministry of Jesus Christ and the superior offering. And that idea will occupy the author's thoughts and Words from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. And so Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 acts as a transition. Verse 1 looks back at what the author had talked about, and then verse 2 looks forward to what he will be talking about. Let's read that again, verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews 8. Now the point what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So verse 1 looks back, looks back at what he's been talking about. It says that uh, now the point in what we are saying, the Greek, you could, you could translate the Greek as the main point or the main thing. It's like a professor in a college lecturing on and on about whatever subject he's talking about. And he keeps talking about all the ins and outs and the wherefores and whyfores of what he's talking about. And then he says, now here's the main point. And the students in the lecture hall grab their pencils and pens and their notebooks and they're going to write this down because they know it's going to be on the midterm. 
That's what the author is saying here. Here's the main point of what he's been talking about. And his main point is that Jesus is our high priest and our king. That Jesus was appointed to this by God and that he sits at the right hand of God in authority. And to make that connection even stronger, he quotes again part of Psalm 110.1, which he quoted back in chapter 1, uh, in verse 3, that Jesus is, is uh, sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so now he comes to verse 2. What's coming? He's going to talk about that this Jesus, our high priest, has a superior ministry in the tent or the tabernacle that God has set up. Now, every Jew knew that the temple was the latest iteration of what was originally a tent or a tabernacle. And this is where sacrifices were made, where people would come to the priest and offer sacrifices for their sins to have their sins covered. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holy and offer sacrifices for the sins of the nation to cover the sins, the sins of the nation. The author makes the point that Jesus performs his ministry not in the temple, not in the tabernacle, but in the heavenly tent or the heavenly tabernacle that God has set up. And the author has already alluded to this. In Hebrews 3, 5, and 6, he speaks of Christ being uh, ministry and faithful over God's house, God's temple. Levites perform their ministry in an earthly temple. Jesus performs his ministry in the heavenly temple or the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus has a superior heavenly ministry, which also necessitates a superior offering. The author will talk about that superior offering later as we move into chapter 9 and 10. But for now, he wants to talk first about better promises. Hebrews 8, 3 through 6. For every high priest is appointed to offer, offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, to have also something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts and sacrifices according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So the author wants us to see some things here. First thing he wants us to see is a point that he discussed back in chapter 5, and then he also discussed it in chapter 7, and Jesse talked about it last week. High priests offer gifts and sacrifices. That is their job. That is what they do. And this high priest, Christ, also must have something to offer. And, of course, we know that his sacrifice was a sacrifice of himself. Second thing the author <coughs> Second thing the author wants us to see is that Christ couldn't, can't offer this sacrifice in the earthly temple. Levitical, the Levitical priests offer those sacrifices. And there are priests already there doing those things. And they're doing it according to the law. They're doing it to the, according to the Old Covenant. Christ couldn't participate in that because he's not a Levitical priest. Christ's high priesthood, priesthood was a, of a different order. Not of the one of Aaron, not of according to the, the Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, the author has touched on this before. 
And he touched on it in chapter 7, where Jesse talked about it as well last week. The author makes the point that the coming of the new priesthood shows that the old priesthood and the law was inadequate to bring perfection. With the new priesthood, there must come a change in the law. Hebrews 7, 11 and 12. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And when you read that phrase, a change in the law, what it's talking about is a change in the covenant. The third idea the author wants us to see has to do with location. The earthly priests served in an earthly temple, and before that they served in a tent, or what was called a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, the passage says, is a copy. Really, a better word probably would be a sketch. It's a sketch, and it's a shadow of how the Greek puts it, the heavenly. The ESV puts it, heavenly things. The author quotes Exodus 25.40 to make the point where Moses is warned by God to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that he was shown on the mount, meaning Mount Sinai, where he received the law as well. The earthly tabernacle was built after this as a sketch, but it's not the heavenly tabernacle. The temple in Jerusalem, along with the Levitical priesthood and the law and the old covenant, were all inadequate. What is adequate, of course, is Christ. And here the author introduces what he'll flesh out in the rest of the chapter. Christ has obtained a much more excellent ministry. It's better than the Old Covenant because it's enacted, or as the Greek says, it's legislated, legally authorized on better promises. Now, you get a prize if you make the connection that the idea of better promises is the name of the series that we are in, the Hebrews, better promises. So, if you, uh, if you knew that, come see me later and I'll give you a gold star. <laughs> or not. Christ and his superior ministry is better than what has gone before. It's a better priesthood. It's a better law. It's a better covenant of which he is the mediator. And we'll see what makes it a better covenant and what the better promises are in a little bit. But what about this idea of better? The Greek word translated better is kreton. It's used 15 times in the New Testament, once in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, where Paul says that it's better to marry. I agree with him there. It's used once in 1 Peter 3, 17, where Peter says that it's better to do good. And it's used again by Peter in 2 Peter 2, 21, where he says it, it, is, it would be, have been better if some people had not known the way of righteousness. The other 12 times it's used is in the book of Hebrews, and it's translated better or superior. And in every case... The word is used to describe the ministry of Christ or his sacrifice or what we have to look forward to. Look at a couple examples of how the word better is used. Again, chapter 17, chapter 7 in Hebrews, verses 15 through 22. This becomes even more evident when another priest arrives in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. 
through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, meaning Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's not hard to see the authors pressing home the idea, the concept that the ministry of Christ and the covenant he mediates is better. It's better than the old covenant. It's better than the sacrificial system. It's better than the law. We have a better mediator. We have better promises. And we have this covenant, which is better, which is the author's primary message in this chapter, and which he will now directly address. Better covenant. Let's first talk about the old covenant. Hebrews 8, 7 through 9. For For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The author just said that Christ has a much more excellent ministry. Because he mediates a better covenant. Now the author says that the first covenant was faulty. The author says even that a second covenant was sought because of the inadequacy of the first covenant. This raises a question. How can something that God made, how can something that God instituted be faulty? Well, the author suggests an answer. And he suggests an answer from a quote that he pulls from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 31 through 34, to show where the fault of the first covenant is, and also to show the superiority of the new covenant. Now, by the time Jeremiah spoke the message that the author quotes here in Hebrews, the Jews of Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians, and they had been deported to Babylon. And in fact, Jeremiah had told the exiles, well, now that you're here, make a life. Have families, start businesses. Pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the prosperity of Babylon. That's in in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it's after that that Jeremiah tells the Jews why the Old Covenant failed in this passage that the author quotes. Jeremiah's quote in Hebrews 8 begins on a positive note. He says that the promise of God is that he'll establish a new covenant with Israel and Judah. The new covenant, he says, will not be like the old, as when God says he led them by the hand out of Egypt. That is a powerful image. In fact, I think I have a way to illustrate that image with a little video here that I found. How do you like it so far? There we go. I will go no further. He's like, oh no, don't leave me. (laughs) 
I'm the intention of the people. <laughs> I have the power. <laughs> <laughs> analogies break down but this one's pretty good I think the God had to lead the Jews by the hand he had to kind of drag them along and you know the story in the wilderness they complained and they complained and God provided and God provided and they complained and they complained and they finally got to the point where God said okay you guys are you guys have been all complaining you're going to spend the next the rest of your life in the wilderness you're all going to die and I'm not going to let you in until you all die but it didn't stop there. Jeremiah lays the blame for the fault of the covenant, and the fault is really not in the covenant. It's in the people. He says, for they did not continue in my covenant. The fault was not with what God had provided. The fault was with those in who, for whom the covenant was made. These are the people whose ancestors, generation after generation, had stood up between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and said, Amen, pledging their commitment to the covenant. And you know how it worked, right? Especially the book of Judges really talks about this. The Jews would fall away. They'd worship other gods. They'd cry out for deliverance because God brought judgment on them. God would respond and he would deliver them and they would thank God and then they would worship other gods again. And the pattern happened over and over. You know, they followed other gods. They tried to make the Lord one of the gods that they followed, or they just ignore him. They made idols. They They performed rituals and sacrifices that were not commanded by God, and they sinned, and they sinned a lot. And it got so bad at one point that they were even sacrificing their children to foreign gods. The Jews did not continue in the covenant. The failure is not in the covenant, but in the people who couldn't, wouldn't keep it. And it's summarized very well in 2 Kings 17, 17, 7 through 12. This happened because the Israelites sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up from the land of Egypt and freed them from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They observed the practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before them and followed the example of the kings of Israel. The Israelites said, th- said things about the Lord, that, Lord their God that were not right. They built high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up sacred pillars and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. 
They burned in, uh, incense on all the high places, just like the nations whom the Lord had driven away from before them did. They did evil practices. Their evil practices made the Lord angry. They worshipped the disgusting idols in blatant disregard for the Lord's command. No wonder then, in Hebrews 8 9, quoting Jeremiah, the Lord showed no concern for them. The Jews did not continue with the covenant. And you could say that God didn't continue with the Jews, except rather than abandon them, God made a new covenant, a better covenant. Hebrews 8, 10 through 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first, the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <clears throat> the nature of the new covenant is that rather than leading the people by the hand, God will put his laws within his followers' minds and hearts. It will be part of them instead of being external to them. The sense there in the Hebrew is that God will endow his people with his laws. And to to endow is to provide with a quality or an ability or an asset. God's people are endowed with God's laws on their hearts and on their minds. It's within them. As the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets, God's laws are written on God's people's hearts. The New Covenant brings results that the Old Covenant couldn't possibly have brought because of the failure of the people to keep the Old Covenant. And it's all about relationship with God. First, our relationship with God is complete and secure. Now, that's not to say that we don't have growth to do. We don't have, we still have to grow in Christ. But God's going to accomplish that growth in us. The relationship is expressed in the phrase, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is both now and future with the new covenant. The principle of God being our God and us being his people is repeated several times in the Old Testament, showing that it's God's plan all along. It's stated in Leviticus 26. In Jeremiah 24, in Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel 37, and Zechariah 8. And it's also stated in Revelation 21, where it describes the intimacy of the relationship that God will have with his people under the new covenant. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The relationship God wants with his people is to be with us. The second result of the new covenant also speaks to this relationship. Each one will know God and will not have to be exhorted by one another to know him because they will already know him. It's not a speaking of the idea that we don't need to evangelize and we don't need to preach and we don't need to teach. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the relationship we have with God. Those who follow God will have that relationship because God has put it 
on our hearts. This is expressed in Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Third result is what makes the relationship possible. It's the forgiveness of our sins. Which, of course, speaks directly to Christ's ministry, his superior ministry. When God said to the Jews in Jeremiah, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more, the readers, the first readers of Jeremiah must have been stunned by that. They grew up in a culture and an old covenant which told them that they had to sacrifice for their sins over and over again. <clears throat> Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed, and with it the sacrificial system that covered sins. It was all gone. How would they deal with their sin? Well, God says he would deal with them. He would deal with their sins once for all under the new covenant. And after demonstrating the forgiveness of sins and that a personal relationship with God is not only possible but certain under the new covenant for those who believe in Jesus, the author gets blunt in verse 13. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The introduction of a new covenant necessitates the end of the old. The old covenant is obsolete. Now, the author acknowledges that the trappings of the Old Covenant still exist, but they aren't worth anything, because there's a better covenant. And the trappings, he says, are about to disappear. Now, some of the people that the author was writing to, in fact, the, probably the primary reason he wrote Hebrews in the first place is because he was concerned that some of the people were kind of sliding back, drifting away, back into the Old Covenant, to the observing the Old Covenant, to maybe even relying on sacrifice. <clears throat> the author makes clear that the old, covenant is, the old covenant is no longer useful. And that line in verse 13 gives credence to the notion that many scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D., likely in the mid to the late 60s, and was only a few years after the book of Hebrews was written that the Romans marched into Jerusalem, conquered the city, and destroyed the temple. And with it, the sacrificial system. And in effect, with it, the old covenant. And it would never be reinstituted. I don't think the author knew that. Maybe he did. But he knew that the old covenant had been supplanted by the new, and whatever trappings were left of the old covenant were just going to fade away. They were going to disappear. I guess he didn't realize that they would be destroyed. By the way, remember in verse 6, where the author said the new covenant was enacted on better promises? Well, these are the better promises, what we've just talked about. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be merciful toward their iniquities 
and I will remember their sins no more. Well, what do you think about all this? The Old Covenant was obsolete whether or not the temple was still standing. The author boldly tells his readers that relationship with God no longer depends on their performance. In the New Covenant, our relationship, my relationship, your relationship depends on God. It's because of Christ that God's laws are written on my heart. It's because of Christ that my sins are no longer remembered by God, which also means there is no more condemnation. Thus, Romans 8.1, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it means that there's no more judgment. There's no more judgment on sins because Christ is already judged. Or I should say God has already judged our sins with the sacrifice of Christ. Remember that sin you committed last week? It's already been judged. The only thing you need to do is receive the forgiveness God has promised you. And it's because of God that I have a personal relationship with God where he is my God and I am his child. So rather than to tra- trying to transform myself with some set of external regulations to somehow stay in God's good graces, the trans- transformation that's going on in my life is internal. Not performed by me, but performed by God. In me, through the Holy Spirit, who was given to me at the time I believed in Christ, who was given to you at the time you believed in Christ. And if you have believed in Christ, the better covenant is actively transforming you into becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, it may not seem like a whole lot of transformations going on right now in your life, but becoming like Christ is a lifetime process. And that we're being transformed doesn't mean that we don't sin from time to time. Maybe even big sins. And being transformed also does not mean that we're standing still. Still, It's not like we're going, okay, God, transform me. Come on, God. It does mean that when we sin, we're forgiven. We simply go to God and say, God, forgive me. And it does mean that God is working in your life, transforming you, prompting you to follow him in the power that he's given you in Christ through the Holy Spirit. In his second letter, Peter, I think, gives us a good idea of how this transformation works. Second <clears throat> Peter 1, 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Catch that for a second. God has given you, granted to you, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. God has granted you all his promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You ever thought about that? God has given you access to his divine nature. God has given you access to become more and more like him. And the reason that's happened is because having escaped from the corruption that is the world, in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Peter says, for because of all these things that God has done, make every effort to supplement your faith with all virtue and with virtue knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with goodness, and, or godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, 
and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your relationship does not depend on your performance. It can't. Because if you, if you tried to have your relationship with God based on what you do, you would be just like the Jews who committed to following the covenant but failed because they couldn't keep it. Your relationship depends on God. Depends on Him working in your life with the sure and the certain promise that you are His. And we simply respond out of gratitude. When Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, that's a response. It's not an obligation. It's not something we have to check off. It's how we respond to what God has done for us. And we respond out of gratitude for the love and for the work that he's doing in us and for the sacrifice of Christ. That's the result of living under the new covenant. Let's pray. Father God, I know, Lord, that I could not possibly, probably not even for a day, keep the old covenant. You would have to uh, drag me along. But even then, I wouldn't keep it. And we realize that about ourselves, Lord. And because of that, we praise you and thank you and glorify you and honor you and fall on our knees in gratitude for instituting the new covenant in Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for us so that our sins might be judged and that we might be free to follow you and to be transformed by you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to remember. Help us to remember when we're kind of falling into that old pattern of, okay, I've got to do this and this to have God like me. Help us to remember, Father, when we do sin, that all we need to do is come to you quickly and immediately and receive the forgiveness that you have already offered. And then help us, Father, to receive the power that you've given us in our lives through your Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.